Right, let's get this show on the road. Let's switch the system on. John, can you hear me? Mark? Mark, you there? John. John, can you hear me? John? Mark? Mark, are you there? Can you hear me? I'm here, John. Oh, damn it. Ground control for Major Mark. John, can you hear me? Uh-huh. It's, it's getting lonely in here. Are you there, Mark? I'm here, John. Let me just try something. My foot's capacitor is set. Get your dilithium crystals all set up, will you? I'm trying. Hang on a minute. This goes here and that goes there. John, can you hear me now? I, I, can, I can hear you. I can hear Let's just cross the streams, okay? Hang on a minute. I thought you said crossing the streams was bad. Um, I know. I'll try to reverse the polarity. Hang on. Oh, uh, what was what was that? What was that? The system's corrupt, John. I, I, um, I know. If in doubt, give it a cloud. I'm gonna have to reset the drivers. This is why you make backups. We have contact. There's something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7. And we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Yes indeed, it is a new episode. And the fact that we are celebrating something right now because we are in the first episode of our eighth season and it's our seventh anniversary as well. So, John, it's good to have you back on the show again. (sighs) Well, that was an adventure. Can we make sure that our equipment is good next time? Yeah, we do have some technical issues that keep cropping up, but uh, it's the problem when it doesn't get used, it gets a bit rusty. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. The problem we have is we have to wait for the valves to warm up as well, so you know how it goes. I cannot change the laws of physics, I've got to have 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So how you been? I've been been busy that's what i've been yeah because you've been getting heavily involved with your uh your warframe stuff haven't you yeah it's been going crazy on that front which is good which is good but it's also been taken away from other things obviously you know having to work two jobs on your twitter profile it says about taking commissions is that, is that something you've started doing now is it no not yet I've, i got the websites for it the domain names for it rather I still need to do the websites and all that. And even then, that won't be awful. I mean, the commissions I take right now are just for the weapons that I've already made. So it's just a matter of waiting to print off. You know, so it's not like that would take away a whole bunch of time. It's simply get the stuff printed. Yeah, the sanding. Oh, dear God, the sanding will take up time. But, uh, yeah, the sooner I no longer have to work two jobs, the better. So that'll be part of it, won't you? I mean, definitely bringing some income from that. Yeah, eventually. And I've had other people asking about me building other things that I haven't built yet. So there's a potential for there, too. We'll see what happens. Now, you have been infiltrating the British Airwaves again, haven't you? (laughs) Hey, they came to me. 
it wasn't my fault this time. Now, you might not know what we're talking about here, folks, but um, have a listen to this. So much going on across Cambridge this weekend. You've got Jules Holland at the Cambridge Corn Exchange this weekend, and you've got, <laughs> as a juxtaposition, Zombies in the Park in Central Park, Peterborough this weekend. <laughs> Love a zombie. And obviously clocks go back and it's Halloween on Sunday. So we thought, right, as Star Radio, thanks to the Star Radio app, streams across the world, we'd get John on. He's been on the show before and he listens in America. I mean, we can sort of like up our game on Halloween and speak to him. John, are you there? Hey, there we are. Technology, we can speak to you. <laughs> Amazing. So where exactly in the world are you? I am pretty much halfway in between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. It's like you got the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which connects the two of those, and I'm kind of right in the middle of that. We'll go, oh, yeah, like we know. I mean, our geography is <laughs> no really idea. bad. <laughs> we sort of like navigate by the weather. So we've got sort of you know, <laughs> yeah. the odd bright spell, but it's mainly rainy here now. What, what, what have you got? Well, the problem is Pennsylvania is also a very rainy state. So even if we switched places, we probably wouldn't have that much of a difference. <laughs> oh, mm. I mean, so you're like three and a half thousand miles away, but you sound like you're next door. Yeah, the sound quality is quite good. I do it's like amazing. this. <laughs> yeah, you sound better than we do. Introduce the song. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this Thank is amazing. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Today we have Josh and Roz on our show. And... <laughs> See, the problem is, if I go to Radio Jock, I end up more going to a Hollywood trailer kind of voice. And I don't know that that's really what you're after. <laughs> no, it is. Please do that. Go on, go on. Introduce the next song for us, John. What is it? Next on Star Radio, we have Ray Parker Jr. with Ghostbusters. And after that, more fun with Roz and Josh. You're in. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that was, well, you can probably guess was Halloween on uh, Star Radio in Cambridge. So they got hold of you out of the blue, basically. Yeah, Yeah. got an email uh, from their... um, from the producer or whatever and he said they were, we were talking this morning about what to do for Halloween and we know that things are, are bigger in America in that regard and we were wondering if you wanted to talk to us about it it's like okay it's fun talking to them I'll, I'll have no problems talking to them but you sent me the, the raw audio because what you heard there obviously was what went out on the air that was way edited yeah yeah I mean that, that Ghostbusters segment was one of the last things that we did but then that was what the first of three segments I think yeah what I should have said is that I'm a few hours west of New York City. That probably would have been a bit easier to do. That's like a lot of people don't know where Letchworth is, so I say, I'm in between Cambridge and London. You've been doing a lot of live streaming lately as well, haven't you? Yeah, been streaming a lot on Twitch. Well, I mean, I do the CAD work for my models, for my props, and uh, several friends of mine who stream said, you know, we'd love to see how you put that stuff together. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do that stuff anyway, I might as well stream. Why not? It's quite interesting, actually, uh, watching some of the stuff you do, because it is very uh, intricate trying to get it perfect with the drawings. And, and some of it you're just working directly from... Screenshots. They're all screenshots, which is... Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can rip the game files, but to me that that's kind of cheating. Plus, based on the terms of service for the company that does Warframe, if I do anything that is ripped from the game files, I can't sell it. So I can't do commissions or anything like that. Well, 
Believe me, from all the screenshots I've taken, I am so not in violation of that one. From the last time we spoke on on the podcast, you, you're kind of in the game now as well, aren't you? Oh, I am in the... Yes, that's right. I, I am... I do actually have what is called a glyph, which a friend of mine made for me, and it was their way of saying thanks for all the props that I've made, you know, and, and being a positive member of the Warframe community. So now you can have a little glyph of me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not part of Warframe. Because you've been making some serious props lately. Dude. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, know the names of the, these things because I'm not into Warframe, but I know what you've done. I mean, that hammer thing. That hammer is a monster. It is a monster. In fact, I'm looking at the second prototype right now. It's here in the studio with me. And this thing weighs just shy of 10 pounds. And it's about, I think it's 54 inches long. Try to remember the conversions. 4.3 kilograms. And what would that be? 1.3 meters? 1.4? I think 1.4. I mean, it's a beast. And it's it's all 3D printed plastic. But it, it looks astonishing. It really does. Yeah, I'm proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I try to go into as much detail as I can, and then I think, why the hell do I go into so much detail? Well, because I can. Painting is a different thing. That's, that's a little bit of a pain in the butt. Now, am I right in thinking that there are different types of weaponry? Oh, God, yeah. The types that you go for are more industrial-looking because they're all angled, which makes it easier to create. Well, yeah. It's for a class of enemy called the Corpus who are basically businessmen. So everything has industrial business kind of thing. Whereas there's another enemy called the Grenier where their stuff is very organic looking and it's got a lot of curves and bumps and things like that. Which in the CAD program I'm currently using is not very easy to do. There are enough cool corpus weapons out there anyway that I don't have to really worry about that. <laughs> I'll switch eventually. I'll, I'll switch to another CAD program eventually. But for now, I got plenty to do. And the production teams behind Warframe, they are seriously impressed with what you do. They love me. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I've known them already since before they started to have their conventions or anything because I met them at PAX East several times. <laughs> so, I mean, we already knew who we were. And But they're always appreciative of, of, you know, the fans that do this. It's not just me. It's also the people who do the artwork, whether it's digital or handmade. You know, they love all the fans who do that. I guess you, you see this a lot, that even though you know that they are a multi-multi-million dollar game, they've got millions of players around the world, and they're just getting bigger, and they're getting more popular. It's still, there's that fact that they look at it as, you know, this is our job, and this is cool, and then to have someone acknowledge that they love the work that they do by putting in additional time and effort to do something like making a prop or making a painting or something like that um, you know they appreciate it which is really cool because a company like that that actually puts things back to the fans of the game just makes you feel like you're part of a family really hmm? that is the one thing that we try to do there are other communities that are very toxic especially ones that are uh, in, in competitive games 
like League of Legends and games where you are actually competing against other humans, those communities get very toxic. But the great thing about Warframe is that it's not PvP, it's all co-op. So when you get in with other players, it's you versus the artificial intelligence bots. You know, they do have a very, very tiny player versus player section, but you have to go in there on your own. Not super popular. You know, everybody goes in there to help each other out. You know, you get in there, you, you form your squad, and you get the mission done, and you leave. You know, so everybody's in there for the same reason. They're not there to fight each other. They're there to help each other. And that makes it a, a lot different than a lot of other communities. This podcast is not paid for by Digital Extremes, by the way. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> but no, Digital Extremes is not a sponsor of this podcast. When you were talking about some of the other groups that are a bit toxic, mm-hmm. it made me think of there's a, a sitcom over here called Dead Pixels. Yeah, I know of it. Mm-hmm. These group of people that are in a, an online gaming quest adventure thing and they do not like newcomers and um, you know they would sell their soul Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get further in the game it's all about how real life gets in the way of their gaming I, I really enjoy it because even though I'm not a massive gamer I can relate to some of the things that they talk about I think it's worth a watch anyway so if you, if you can get hold of dead pixels oh I'm, I'm sure i can whether it's legit or not is a completely different story right i think we should take a break there and when we come back we're gonna go a bit spacey because we haven't done that for a while uh because as i say we haven't done a proper episode for a little while and uh so it's about time we made amends for that <laughs> yeah Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, The journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. Do you desire a place to get away? How about free? You truly belong here among the clouds on Bespin, the first stop on your Star Tours getaway package. Stay and play in the clouds and enjoy the spectacular Galaxy in the Skies fireworks pageant every single night. The fun continues on the forest moon of Endor, where you'll sleep under the stars with the lovable Ewoks in their charming tribal villages. Your third stop brings you to the peaceful world of Alderaan, where you can relax in a natural wonderland, recently voted safest planet in the galaxy by Hyperspace Traveler. 
This Star Tours getaway package is three times the fun in one. So ask your travel consultant to book yours today. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, we always like a bit of space news. And, um, well, there's been a lot of space tourism and all that kind of stuff going on. And there's somebody that's been talking about what they feel about space tourism and space travel in general as regards to the environmental implications of it all. And it's not somebody you would probably think of. Have a listen to this. This is actually uh, from the BBC. It's Prince William. It's been in the back of my mind for quite a while, you know, the whole climate change debate, uh, environmental issues growing, pollution. So I've always felt very strongly about it and, and I've been watching very carefully what others have been doing. And for me, over the last few years, the, the sort of the urgency and the positivity um, particularly the positivity around the debate has been missing. It's been very negative. Understandably, it's, it's such a large issue that everyone feels completely overwhelmed by the facts, the, the, the scale of the problems and things like that. So we wanted to break it down and try and work out how could we add something that was going to create action, create positivity, create energy towards actually solving some of these problems. The idea is to make the, uh, the Earthshot Prize the biggest you know, global environment prize in history. And I think it, 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 we've, we've got time on our side. This is the right time to do this. We've got 10 years of critical uh, time where we have to be making inroads and finding these solutions and inspiring people that we can fix these solutions because past 2030, things get you know, rapidly worse very quickly. And of course, it's called the Earthshot. And as soon as you hear Earthshot, you think, oh, Moonshot and JFK. Absolutely. Uh, so the original kind of genesis of this is to try and capture the ingenuity and the problem solving and the, the ambition of the moonshot. And so, you know, based on Jeff Key's idea to get a man on the moon all those years ago and, you know, all the technology and all the advancements that came out of trying to get a man on the moon, like solar panels, CAT scanners, you know, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, we're trying to galvanize and, and push um, solutions forwards. And I think for me particularly, the idea that this space race is on at the moment, we've seen everyone trying to get space tourism going, it's the idea that we, we need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live. And I think that's, that ultimately is what sold it for me, is that that really is quite crucial. We need to be focusing on, on this one rather than giving up and, and, and heading out into space to try and uh, think of solutions for the future. Mm. Having said that, though, would you like to be a space tourist one day? I do. I have absolutely no uh, interest in going that high. Uh, I'm, I'm a pilot, but I'm a helicopter pilot, so I stay reasonably close to the ground. I've been up to 65,000 feet once in a, in a plane, and that was truly terrifying. Right. And that's high enough. You do you go weightless at that point? Not no. quite, but the sky is black above you, and you can right. see the curve of the Earth. Yeah. That's close enough to space to me. I personally think there is room for both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, okay... The idea of trying to save the planet is plan A, but you also need a backup plan just in case. And when you think about it, I know Trump tried to uh, get rid of it, but NASA has a, a massive, massive Earth science program. And if you look at some of the projects that they are working on to try and work out what is going on with the climate and to try and help with that, you need space exploration to do it. 
you look at all the things that have been done on the International Space Station to try and help with healthcare. I'm not going to say cures, but research into different things to do with cancer and all kinds of things because cultures grow at um, a rapid pace in space. You can get a lot of research done a lot faster. Space tourism, I'm I don't know where I stand with it. When it came to like the Inspiration4 mission, to me that is proper space travel. They went into orbit, they stayed there for a couple of days, they came back down. But not only that, they managed to raise so much money for St. Jude's, yeah. which is a worthwhile thing. Mm-hmm. And what they achieved for non-military types, non-anything to do with aviation or anything, being trained up like that and then going into space is amazing. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the other style of space tourism, when you're going past the Kármán line and staying up there for a few minutes and coming back down, I don't know where I stand on that, (laughs) to be honest. I prefer space when they're actually doing something for the good of mankind and when it's just benefiting a few of those people that have got a lot of money to spend. Yeah, I'm I'm not too sure where I stand on that. Yeah, I I don't understand the either-or kind of thing, like Prince William kind of indicated. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. Yeah, for sure. It was The Tonight Show, I think, with Jimmy Kimmel and Tom Hanks was on. Apparently, he was offered, before William Shatner was, the opportunity to go up there. The way he phrased it was that, you know, you pay all this money, and then you get four minutes of nothing but the rocket shaking, and you're stuck in your seat as you're going up into the sky, and, you know, then all of a sudden it's a few minutes of, oh, wow, I'm weightless, and look at all this, this is so cool, and wow, look at the Earth, and oh, I gotta get back in my seat, okay, and get back in your seat, and four more minutes of going through the atmosphere and coming back down to Earth, and he's just like, he's not gonna spend his money on that. (laughs) So, it's a great clip. He's not wrong. I guess it's no different than, I'll never climb Everest, I think it's cool, is it worth all the money and time to do that? Well, maybe if that's the kind of person you are. But, I mean, if it was space tourism as a method of actual transport, take off from this launch pad and land in someplace else in another country, that'd be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But just go up, go to space, come back. I'm like, mm. As someone who simply could never afford that, I don't even know that I'd do that even if I could afford it. But that doesn't mean I, I want it to go away. It's just not for me. Part of me does wish that the money that would go to those kinds of space tourist flights would go to something else. To local food banks, you know, homeless shelters, something like that. That's a fight that's always going to go on. And, and so, that's the know. reason why Inspiration4 was such a really good mission. Mm-hmm. And to me, they are proper astronauts because they went oh, yeah, they are. into they are. orbit. <laughs> Were you watching that live, the launch and landing? Yeah, yeah. I was actually on vacation when uh, the Inspiration4 mission happened, so I was sat in a hotel room in the middle of the night watching that one. (laughs) When William Shatner came back down to Earth and he was trying to express the way he felt about the whole thing, Jeff Bezos, he had no interest in what he had to say. Nope. Not at all. Had no problems in interrupting him. What was it, for a bottle of champagne? He's like, oh, hey, get that over here. It's like, wow, dude, really? This is a 90-year-old guy who mm-hmm. has a lot to say generally, if you've ever 
watch mm-hmm. any of the videos he makes. Or watch his Twitter feed. Oh, yeah. He's active on Twitter, too. And the things he was saying about the fact that everyone should do this, if you can get artists up there and photographers and people in the music industry that can see this and then bring that back to Earth and create something from it. He's right there. If, if something can be created from it, that is positive for mankind. But even farther, he got kind of gloomy there, too. He's like, is that what death is? Is that what death is like? You know, you got blue sky, then all of a sudden black. I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, he, he <laughs> did get a bit deep. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's all the people thinking that, well, it was just him acting. I don't think so. He seemed to be very profoundly experienced by that. And if you watch the footage from inside the capsule when they were up there, he spent just about his whole time staring out the window. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you? Not being nasty, but if you want to do that thing and float about, just go on a zero G flight. You can do that, but you're never going to experience what you see up there again, especially when you're his age. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Bezos wanted, he didn't care. He was like, okay, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. All I care about is that everybody's back safe and the mission secure. Yeah, okay. Where's that bottle of uh, champagne? You bring it over here. It's like, and you can even see the, the look on Shatner's face was kind of annoyed by that. Yeah. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. It did kind of make my blood boil a little bit. A little bit. Just hear the man out. Yep, a little bit. Really, we can't talk about that without talking about something that happened just a few days ago. But one of the guys who went up with him, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, Glenn DeVry. I hope it's DeVry. It might be DeVries. I apologize. But unfortunately, he was just killed in a plane crash in New York City a few days ago. It was uh, in Hampton Township, about 40 miles northwest of New York City. He was flying in a Cessna 172, which is a four-seater, and it's just a you know prop plane. Yeah. But apparently they don't know what happened, but the plane went down in a heavily wooded area, and everybody on board was killed. Wow. To go to space and then end up dying in a plane. Well, isn't that actually kind of what happened to Yuri Gagarin, too? That exactly what happened to Yuri Gagarin. He yeah. Went, he went up with his tutor in a plane that they both were familiar with, and nobody really knows what happened. There's been lots of theories of what happened, because apparently it was bad weather when it happened. Right. But, yeah, nobody really knows what happened then. I don't think there was a black box or anything, so... Yeah, and we're recording this on a Saturday, and this was literally this past Thursday that that plane went down, so they don't know anything about what happened yet. I'm sure they've got the black box and they've got all of that, but nothing's been released as of yet. Yeah, that's a sad case of affairs, but... uh... At least he got to do that, though. At least he mm-hmm. yeah. got to go into space. He never released how much he paid to go on that Blue Origins flight, but when he came back, he said it was worth it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good for him for doing that. The first NASA mission since 1972 to put humans on the moon's surface has been pushed back by a year because of a funding shortfall and a lawsuit over the landing vehicle. A lawsuit? Yeah, the space agency's chief administrator, Bill Nelson, which is another thing that's happened since we last spoke, is NASA's got a new administrator, Mm -hmm. an ex-astronaut as well. So Bill Nelson confirmed the delay in a press conference that took place this week. Under its Artemis program, NASA will send the first woman and the 13th man onto the lunar surface. Now... A U.S. federal judge recently upheld a decision by the agency to award the contract to build the lunar landing vehicle for this mission to Elon Musk's 
company SpaceX. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos had contested the decision in part because he said the contract was supposed to have been awarded to more than one bidder. However, a funding shortfall from Congress meant that this wasn't possible, according to documents published by NASA at the time of the contract announcement. Mr. Nelson partially blamed the landing mission delay on this lawsuit, so basically he's blaming Jeff Bezos for the delay of the Artemis program. And he said, returning to the moon as quickly and safely as possible is an agency priority. However, the recent lawsuit with other factors, the first human landing under Artemis is likely to be no earlier than 2025. So it doesn't necessarily mean 2025. It just means it won't be before then. It could be 2026, 2027, anytime. Mr. Bezos's firm Blue Origin had partnered with three other aerospace companies to compete for the prestigious lander contract. The judgment last week means that a version of SpaceX's Starship, currently undergoing testing in southern Texas, will be the vehicle used to carry people down to the lunar surface on that mission. The first mission under the Artemis program is set to fly in February next year, 2022, and NASA will launch the Orion spacecraft on the a powerful space launch system SLS rocket without people on board. During this mission the Orion will fly around the moon on a voyage lasting three weeks in order to test its systems. The next flight with astronauts Artemis 2 will follow in 2024 but it will just fly around the moon it won't attempt to land. Artemis 3 will be the first mission to return to the surface of the moon since Apollo 17 in 1972. It is set to land on on the lunar south pole which is thought to hold vast stores of water ice in craters that never see sunlight the ice in these craters could be used to make rocket fuel on the moon bringing down the cost of lunar exploration because it would not need to be shipped from earth the program will also see the first person of color land on the moon though it is unclear whether this will happen on artemis 3 or a later mission so that's been delayed yeah. and all because Jeff Bezos threw his toys out the pram and decided to put a lawsuit against NASA threw his toys out the pram <laughs> well what can you say I mean, th- this isn't unusual this is part of the things that go on with government contracts it's just Jeff Bezos has more money to throw at such a lawsuit oh yeah lawsuits and issues regarding government contracts in fact, when it comes to the government, they will say, all right, here's when we plan to announce the winner of the, of the contract, and then they automatically put, like, 90 days for people to contest it, you know, before they actually decide, okay, we're going to go with it, we're safe now. So, oh well, what can you do? How can we do this podcast without talking about the James Webb Space Telescope? <laughs> it's so close now. This thing has been going on for, like, what, 20 years now? Something like that? Yeah, I would have guessed it's about that sort of time. It's been a long time coming. And right now, they're set to launch on December 18th. It's down in uh, French Guiana. Spent 16 days at sea, going from California to South America. So they've unloaded it, they unboxed it, and it's been set into a vertical position for the Ariane rocket that it's going to go on to. It actually got there back in the middle of October. So everything since then has been preparing it for the launch on the Ariane 5. And uh, dude, we're, we're getting there. One of the 
funny things about this is that obviously this is a, a collaboration between NASA and mm-hmm. ESA and um, the Canadian Space Agency as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. ESA made a video whilst the James Webb Space Telescope was being moved from the ports in Kourou to the spaceport there and it's what they're describing as YouTube's biggest unboxing video (laughs) well I mean yeah depending on how you define biggest I guess they're not wrong (laughs) I'll have to put it in the show notes this video that they put up of it being unboxed in the clean room Mm -hmm. Um, and what I will say is that TGP nominal honorary crew member, Professor Mark McCorcoran, who is the Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at the uh, European Space Agency, appeared on BBC Radio 4's World at One with Sarah Montague earlier this week talking about the Space Telescope. So have a listen to this. Now then, the Hubble Telescope has changed our fundamental understanding of the universe. T-minus 10, go for main engine start. We are go for main engine start, T-minus 6. Five, four, three, two, one, and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. Well, that was its launch 21 years ago, and because it's based in space, way above clouds and light pollution, it has a crystal clear view of the universe, which is why 18,000 peer-reviewed science papers have been published on its discoveries. But now its role will be superseded by something called the James Webb Space Telescope, and the prospect of what it will discover has led to it being described as one of the great grand scientific endeavours of the 21st century. Now, someone who's worked on it for the last 23 years is Mark McCrone, who is European Space Agency's senior science advisor. Mark, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correct. <laughs> uh, nearly. McCorcoran, yes. <laughs> McCorcoran. You, you are polite, not at all. Um, so, um, Mark, give us the dream. Very, uh, annoyingly, I... The timings mean we've only got a couple of minutes. What's the dream of what this will do for us? What Hubble has done is taken us relatively close to the edge of the universe in the sense that we're able to look back um, over very large distances, and that means over very large amounts of time, close to the edge of the universe when the universe was formed in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. There's a tantalizing gap there, and that is that we can't actually see the first stars and galaxies that were ever formed because of the expansion of the universe, what we call the redshift, moves all of that light from Hubble's visible wavelengths into the infrared. And that's what the James Webb Space Telescope is designed to do. One of its main goals is to let us see the first stars and galaxies that ever formed in the universe. Okay, which will tell us what? Well, much of the thing about what we do in astronomy is, is, is kind of an origin story. Where did we come from? Where did the elements which make up our bodies, make up our planet, where did they, how did they form? How did that evolve into the world we see today around us? Um, our own solar system is only four and a half billion years old. That seems, of course, very old, but it's less than a third of the age of the universe. And we're also able with Webb to look at places where new stars are being born today in our own Milky Way. And when I say they're young, they're maybe just a million years old. Of course, that's old by most standards, but relative to the age of the universe, that's like comparing a four-day-old baby to uh, a a middle-aged person. And so, you know, it's a remarkable ability to span time Mm. from the youngest to the oldest objects. We've we've only got a few seconds, but there was a few hiccups when Hubble was first launched that had to be remedied by a spacewalk. Are you nervous about the next month? What happens when it (laughs) it goes up? 
well i know that this you know, this is the product of dedicated work of tens of thousands of people so i'm confident we've done everything we can but of course i'm nervous it, we're, we're doing something completely unprecedented the challenges involved in getting this machine to unfold get down to minus 230 degrees centigrade so that it can be a powerful sensitive observatory it's going to be a very nerve-wracking month and then six months in fact it takes mark, before we start doing science mark mccorkran thank you very much now i didn't actually know mark was involved with the program and it was until I read one of his tweets saying I'm in Kuru, I'm overseeing James Webb Space Telescope coming in from the, the port and I was like oh my god yeah. <laughs> It's funny that they mentioned about uh, the problems with the, the Hubble, at least the Hubble is in low enough Earth orbit that they could get the space shuttle up and do repairs like they had done before Can't do that with James Webb, it's going up, it's going out a far distance so, you know, if something breaks they're kind of out of luck, Yeah. but it it's funny because according to NASA, there are over 344 ways that this could fail. They say there are 344 on average points of failure when it comes to the James Webb. So they said what's going to happen is 28 minutes after liftoff, it'll detach and it'll begin its deployment. And then when it gets to its location, that's when it has to do all of the unfurling and opening up the solar shield and all of that. So according to this, the telescope has 144 release mechanisms, all of which must work perfectly because it's like an origami project. You know, you have to unfold it precisely. And if you miss one unfolding, well, you can't unfold the rest. They tried to decrease the number of these potential weak spots all over the place, and they said they were finally able to get it down. But even at that, it's, it's 144 of them. But even at that, there are still 344 potential points of failure until it's fully deployed, which is crazy. They said that when they did find an, a single point of failure, they gave it what they call special treatment. Obviously, they have to call a critical item control plan. They have to throw in extra inspection points, and they've also done extra offline testing. Because of all of this, they have to have multiple contingency plans. All of these things they need to go in just to get the thing to deploy properly. And then they say that uh, there's only one deployment really that is time critical, and that is to get the solar array out. So 340 44 points of failure and if something goes wrong they certainly can't launch another ship up there to fix it that's it when we had eric smith on the show uh, a few years back who was the director of the program at the time it's strange now that there's probably been two or three other directors that have taken over from him since we spoke to him yeah but he was saying that the amount of problems that they could possibly have with it i've just been reading here that as we record this as you said it's on a saturday tuesday coming we'll see the preparation team lift the telescope onto its launch adapter this is the ring that will hold it on top of the rocket lasers will guide this procedure and then it's a case of mating it to the ariane upper stage via the adapter it's a tricky event and was even more trickier than that will be the encapsulation when the rocket's nose cone is lowered over the telescope there'll be very little clearance especially when the whole structure is shaking back and forth during the 30 minute ride into space statistically we're only six to eight inches from the edge of the fairing but under launch load we come within 3.5 inches it's 
very close and we need to be very precise about everything, said NASA's launch site manager, Mark Voiton. It's going to be a nail-biter for a long time. Oh, and you were asking about Canada's part on this one? They did the fine guidance sensor and near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph. I'm looking at the stats for this. It looks like there are actually 12 European countries that in one way or another are participating in this. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. And as you can tell, because Mark McCorcoran is out there, or was out there, and has been on the mission for 23 years, Britain has got a part in this. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) Mark McCorcoran recently co-hosted the latest Space Rocks Uplink episode on YouTube with fellow TGP nominal honorary crew member Alexander Milas earlier this week, where they also discuss the James Webb Space Telescope with ESA experts Katie Underhill and Sarah Kendrew and you can find a link to this episode in our show notes. A James Webb Space Telescope design has been submitted to Lego Ideas by somebody calling themselves Tony's My Uncle (laughs) in July of this year and it's technically amazing to look at. The project has received the 10,000 supporters needed to be officially advanced to the review phase, which will begin in January 2022. The review is a thorough process and can take several months. When finished, LEGO will make a go-no-go decision to develop and sell a product based on this design. So hopefully, James Webb will be in space by then. (laughs) We would hope! (laughs) Tony's my uncle said about their pitch... I'm an astronomer and I'm amazed at the complexity of the James Webb Space Telescope. There are so many moving parts and systems that all have to operate together to make the telescope work. I wanted to build a model to help others appreciate this incredible machine and learn the basics of how the telescope works. This replica models James Webb Space Telescope's curved primary mirror made up of 18 movable hexagonal segments as well as its hinged secondary mirror. I incorporated all of James Webb Space Telescope's major subsystems, including the science instruments, the propulsion, power, and the communication subsystems. This model unfolds just like the real thing so that builders can see how this telescope transforms after it launches into space. They've got to do that. The fact that it transforms is amazing in and of itself. But, I mean, considering how well they've done with other NASA-related projects, I can't imagine that this wouldn't be a big seller. It is amazing. I mean, it it totally folds up like it would be if it was in the fairings, and then you can unfold it to its entirety, and everything moves on it. Everything. doesn't say how many parts it uses. I'd be curious to see that. Yeah, it's going to be pretty big when it's finished, but I'll put some links to it in the show notes. I mean, granted, it can't necessarily be as cool as, you know, a... Saturn V Lego rocket, you know. Or a ceiling prop. Or a ceiling, you know, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. I've just seen that they've made a Lego Atat. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome, but I'm not paying £750 for no. it. No, no. I've already downloaded a very, very nice replica of one of those for 3D printing. You know, I, I would much rather do that it'll look cleaner i mean nothing wrong with lego but i mean it's got that lego look to it yeah when it comes to something like that i'd rather have it look like the movie you know without the lego pegs on the sides and so forth that's just me that's just me coming from he who has a saturn 5 on his desk you know (laughs) (laughs) 
The commercial that Lego put out for the release of the Atta was awesome. I'll have to put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, but for us, it's $800. How much of that is just because of the licensing fees to Lucas? Uh, a lot of it is going to be based a on that. A lot of it. But then when you think of how much time and effort goes into designing these things... Oh, I'm sure. It's like when you look at video games and you say, well, you know, why are video games so expensive? And then you look at the development team that goes behind a, a top-of-the-range game. And and if it's got a soundtrack to it, and, it's you know, some of these have got, like, full orchestras, you, yeah. you, these people have got to be paid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. For more than 50 years, Snoopy has contributed to the excitement for NASA's human spaceflight missions helping inspire generations to dream big. NASA has shared an association with Charles M. Schultz and Snoopy since the Apollo missions. Snoopy was used to encourage NASA's spaceflight safety initiative during the time of the Apollo, and Schultz created a comic strip of Snoopy on the moon capturing public excitement about America's achievement in space. In May 1969, the Apollo 10 astronauts Gene Sermon, John Young and Thomas Stafford travelled all the way to the moon for one final checkout before the lunar landing attempt. The mission required the lunar module to skim the moon's surface within 50,000 feet and snoop around, scouting for an Apollo 11 site. Mm. Leading the crew to name the lunar module Snoopy, and the Apollo command module was labelled Charlie Brown, after Snoopy's loyal owner. Snoopy's first flight into space was in 1990, when he was unable to catch a ride on the Space Shuttle Columbia during STS-32. The agency's Silver Snoopy Award was created during the Apollo era and remains to this day the highest honour awarded to NASA employees and contractors by astronauts celebrating achievements relating to mission successes and human flight safety. Each silver pin given with this award depicts an astronaut Snoopy and each of these little pins were flown in space. Continuing the tradition, Artemis 1 will also carry a package of silver Snoopy pins for future recognitions. Today, the partnership continues. Snoopy will ride along as a zero-g indicator on the Artemis 1 spacecraft. Zero-gravity indicators are small items carried on board the spacecraft that provide a visual indicator of when the spacecraft has reached weightlessness of microgravity. You won't need to have an astronaut on board to do that because you can just see the thing floating around. So Snoopy will be floating around in space when Artemis 1 reaches space. Nice. For Snoopy's flight on the Artemis 1 mission, he will be outfitted in a custom orange flight suit complete with gloves, boots and a NASA patch. In addition to the doll and the silver Snoopy pins, a pen nib from Charles M. Schultz's Peanut Studio will make the trek on Artemis 1 wrapped in a space-themed comic strip as part of a collection of mementos selected by NASA to fly on board the Orion spacecraft. Peanuts is releasing a new suite of curriculum and short videos with its partner, Go Noodle, to encourage kids to learn about gravity, teamwork and space exploration while they follow Snoopy along on his Artemis 1 journey. It's really cool that NASA is continuing that tradition of Snoopy in space. I used to have, and I might still have if I check my folks' attic, a Snoopy astronaut playset that I had as a kid, dating back to 1979 by a company called Knickerbocker, and I'll try and find a photo of what it looked like to put in the show notes. 
and if I've still got it, it might be worth a bit of money. <laughs> um, I know Snoopy and Peanuts is a, a huge thing in America. It's not as big here as it was in America. I mean, you have the tradition of the the Peanuts Christmas specials and all that. Oh my kind god, of stuff. yes. Um, well, we don't have that here. Yeah, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, all that. And there's the Easter egg hunt and things like that. Yeah, yeah, they've got one for all the bigger holidays here. But yeah, we, we didn't really have that here. But I have noticed when I go in the stores, and at the moment there is a big push on Peanuts merchandise. So it is making a bit of a comeback here. Hmm. But it is good to see. And making a new batch of the silver Snoopy pins for future generations of collaborators and contractors and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's so cool. That's always good. China have recently made history. Since we've been off the air, as it were, China have launched the, the core section of their new space station, and there's a, a crew on there already. And last month, astronaut Wang Yaping has become the first woman in Chinese history to walk in space. She is one of three astronauts, or takenauts, China's term for the country's space explorers, who are currently stationed at the Qiangong Space Station. She is part of the Chenzhou 13 crew, which blasted off from a launch centre in the Gobi Desert on the 16th of October to embark on a six-month mission in the Tianha module, which is the core part of the space station. Wang and her fellow Taikonaut Zaizi Gang left the Tianha module and ventured out into space on November the 8th for a six-hour spacewalk to install equipment and test the station's robotic arm. I didn't even know they had a robotic arm. I don't suppose that's been provided by Canada. Probably not. <laughs> this is all according to a media release from the China Manned Space Agency, or the CMS, the third crew member, Yi Jiang Fu, assisted the team from within the space station. A video, which has been published by the South China Morning Post, shows the astronauts performing tasks outside the space station and waving hello via a live stream beamed back to Earth. I think that's the second female astronaut that China have had on a space station because they had that one previously which is probably now in the pacific ocean somewhere right <laughs> yeah china are very forward in promoting females in space mm -hmm. which is it was really cool when astro launched their rocket back in august were you watching that i saw the replay of it yeah i was watching it live that was um <laughs> To see a rocket lift off just a little bit and then slide sideways and yeah. keep sliding sideways and then finally start to take off slowly. I'll tell you, I was waiting for that thing to explode. How else can you describe that? It's like, oh, they've got an engine failure. That thing's going to blow up. But it didn't. Well, it, it, well, I can't say it didn't. It didn't explode right there, but uh, it did actually go up. And it started to go, but right before Max-Q, something blew out, and it started to tumble and fail, and that was it of that. But they're trying to get another launch. They said they know exactly what happened. They know the engine failure. So they're trying to get another launch before the end of the year, which is nice. But get ready. Space is going to get a little bit more crowded. They have also filed with the Federal Communications Commission for their Constellation program of 13,000 satellites. 
So, yeah, looks like they're also trying to get in on the satellite communication broadband thing that, you know, well, we've got with SpaceX. Okay, now they've said straight up whether they're going to get to that 13,000 or not is debatable. They want to get a first launch up 40 satellites, and those would be in an equatorial orbit. If that is successful, then they want to put up an interesting number, 2,296 satellites in the second phase to provide a global internet service, with the third phase involving an additional 11,284 satellites. This, they say, would be based on customer demand, which, okay, makes sense. So, astronomy, photography, you might be getting many more streaks in your photos. Global communication is a problem. There are still lots of places on this planet that don't have any kind of broadband, even here in the US. Guess you gotta weigh the bad with the good on that one. Now, more than 60 years after Bessie Coleman broke the bonds of terra firma to become the first African-American woman and Native American to earn a pilot's license, Sally Ride blasted off aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger to become the first American woman in space. The lives and accomplishments of both women have now been honoured with the naming of landmarks on Pluto. The International Astronomical Union recently approved the names Coleman Mons and Ride Rupes for two large geological features on the southern hemisphere of Pluto, which itself was explored for the first time by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft in 2015. Members of the New Horizon mission proposed the names to the IAU in line with a convention that Pluto features include those named for historic pioneers who crossed New Horizons in the exploration of the Earth, sea and sky. Sally Wright and Bessie Coleman were separated by generations, but they are forever connected by their great achievements, which open the doors for women and girls around the world, said NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. In breaking barriers, they motivated so many women to pursue dreams and careers they didn't think were possible, and their sheer persistence and pursuit of equality inspire people to this day. Sally Ride's spaceflight onboard Challenger in June 1983 made her not only the first American woman to reach space, but at 32 the youngest American to do so. She flew on Challenger again in 1984, and she has been widely lauded not only for her exemplary work at NASA, but for her focus on educating and encouraging the next generation of scientists and astronauts. She co-founded the Sally Ride Science in 2001 to inspire young people to pursue STEM careers and to promote STEM literacy. She died of cancer in 2012 at the age of 61 and upon her death became the first astronaut to be publicly recognised as LGBTQ. The Ride Rupes is an enormous cliff located near the southern tip of Pluto's signature heart-shaped region known as... Is it Tomba... Tomba Regio? Tomba Regio, mm -hmm. It's one of the largest and tallest tectonic cliff faces on Pluto, between 1 and 2 miles high and 155 miles long. To its west is the giant plateau dotted in distinctive pits, to the east of it a vast icy volcanic expanse unlike any other in the solar system. Sally loved space exploration, said Sally Ride's life partner. Even after her NASA years, she dreamed of joining a mission to the Moon, Mars or Pluto. She also loved the debate about whether Pluto was a true planet. <laughs> Sally would be over the moon, 
or Pluto in this case, with the honour of having Ride Rupes named after her. In the early days of American flight, Coleman led the way for women and people of colour to become aviators. After travelling to France in 1923 to obtain her licence, US flight schools at the time did not admit either women or black people. She became famous for her daring stunts in skies across Europe and in the US. She gave speeches and showed films of her air tricks to earn money, but refused to speak anywhere that segregated or discriminated against African Americans. And she encouraged African Americans and women to learn how to fly. She died in March 1926 at the age of 32, when her co-pilot lost control of her plane on a test flight and it crashed. Another person lost too soon. Yeah. Coleman Mons, or Mountain, is a unique feature in the region of the cryovolcanoes or ice volcanoes, one or more recently created volcanic domes in these areas. The fact that the impact craters have been mostly erased in the area around Ride Rupes and Coleman Mons indicates relatively recent geological activity. And such activity was one of the most important discoveries to come from the New Horizons historic flyby of Pluto. It's exciting to be honouring these amazing women who were on the forefront of exploration on the edge of the classical solar system, said New Horizons Deputy Project Scientist Kelsey Singer of the Southwest Research Institute, who proposed both featured names. Now that is really cool. Yep. And Sally Ride is also getting her own limited edition U.S. quarter. The new collectible quarters have been a big thing lately, but the United States Mint has announced limited edition quarters to be released under the American Women Quarters Program, which is five notable figures on each quarter, and Sally Ride's going to be one of them. Quarters are going to be released for Maya Angelou, Dr. Sally Ride, Wilma Mankiller, Nina Otero Warren, and Anna Mae Wong. Some of those names are, are going to be really unknown to some people. That's okay. Now's your chance to learn about them. So the limited edition quarters will be issued every year from 2023 through 2025, with each year bringing a new batch of five unique coins to the American Women's Quarters program. These are going to be for 2022, so these will be next year's. And uh, Dr. Sally Wright is going to be on one of them. Cool. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I managed to complete my uh, 50 states quarters. I had a couple of the territory ones left to find. Oh, okay. I managed to, to get hold of them, so... Oh, nice. Collection is complete. Nice. I've just got the states. I didn't go for the uh, territories as well. It's all fun. It's cool to say, hey, we've done this. We've got this. You know, like, we've got you know, patches from Richard Garriott, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Mark and I do this to each other. He's got things I'd love to have. I've got things he'd love to have. So we, we toy with each other every now and then. <laughs> the first trips from the UK to space are a step closer following an agreement between an Edinburgh-based rocket company and a Shetland spaceport. The missions are set to start from 2022 with aims for 16 launches a year at the height of a decade-long project. Skyrora, the rocket company, wants to blast off from Unst, the northernmost Shetland island, so it's the, the most northern island in the Shetland Islands, <laughs> from the former Shetland Space Centre, now known as Saxavord Spaceport. Now, Saxavord sounds Scandinavian to me, so it's probably from a Viking-sounding word, because a lot of the islands in the north there were owned 
by Viking territories at that time. Mm. Skyrora and Saxavord Spaceport hopes for the first mission to take place in 2022. There are hopes that the project could be used to help service new satellite constellations from the likes of OneWeb and SpaceX. No, I don't know about that. I can't see SpaceX using somebody else to do their launches. I mean, I can't see that either. Their XL vehicle, which is 23 metres long and weighs 56 tonnes and is capable of delivering satellites into orbit, it is hoped that the project will create 140 jobs locally and another 70 jobs across Shetland. Skyrora founder and chief executive said, We have made no secret of our ambition to be the first company to launch from the UK and it's really exciting to agree to this multi-launch deal with Saxavord. We are very proud to be at the forefront of space innovation in the UK, deploying our assets and helping to unlock exciting opportunities as part of the new space economy. Yeah, could be any time soon. Something launching from uh, UK soil, as uh, NASA put it, the first Americans to be launched from American soil in an American rocket. It is exciting that for the first time in the UK history of space involvements to be launching something from the UK. In the past, we have launched our rockets from Australia, even though Australia didn't actually have a space program of their own at the time. Well, they certainly do now. So you just gave me a segue. <laughs> you just gave me a perfect segue into the next thing that I was going to talk about. That was unplanned, folk. I guarantee that. But uh, NASA has recently signed an agreement with the Australian Space Agency to provide, well, a rover for the, for future moon missions. It's a consortium of Australian businesses and research organizations, and they will develop a small rover that can operate on the lunar surface. So the rover would have the ability to pick up and transfer lunar material like broken rock and dust and stuff like that and deliver it to a NASA-operated what they call an in-situ resource utilization system. So basically, it lands on the moon and it sits there. And that's it. It doesn't move. So the Australian rover will then be the thing to go out, get the material, and then come back to the NASA machine for identification and all those other things. So the agreement will be supported under the Australian government's $150 million, slight difference, Moon to Mars initiative, uh, which was announced back at a press event in 2000. 19. Yeah, so they've reached an agreement, and Australia will be making a moon rover. I do like what the Australian Space Agency has achieved with their logo. It just looks like the Australian map made out of different dots. But if you look at how the dots were arranged, they're the constellations that the original people, the Aboriginals, discovered in the skies thousands of years ago. And it's put together, and it makes up the Australian map which I think that's really cool. Oh, nice. Now, I'm looking at it. I was wondering what those dots were all about. There's a video that goes along with it, which explains what the constellations are that make up those dots. It's always good to have more people on board. Space is cool. Space is hard, but space is cool. The only reason the Australians made a space agency is because New Zealand did. (laughs) Yeah, probably. But, I mean, the other side of that coin, both of those countries are great for launching. Oh, for sure. Even if Australia did something like... Grant, I'm not advocating this. Because, like, the center of Australia hardly has anybody there. It's desert land, really. They could launch from inside Australia as well if they really wanted to. Again, not advocating that. They've got plenty of shoreline where they could do that. But if they really wanted to, they could. 
you watch those rocket lab launches from New Zealand and it's absolutely mm-hmm. spectacular to watch because the surrounding area is amazing. It's such a beautiful place to launch a rocket from. Now, I've got one last story that I'd like to put out there. Space Force leader, Chief Master Sergeant Roger Toberman, has suggested that the Education Secretary should be on the National Space Council. Early education about the value created by space technology should be a national priority, the top enlisted leader of the US Space Force said during a live webcast interview with Jamie Morlin, Executive Director of the Aerospace Corps and the Centre for Space Policy and Strategy. That is why it might be a good idea to have the Secretary of Education on the National Space Council. Most, the most talented people find their passion very early in life. So more should be done to attract high achievers to the field of space. And what are we doing in elementary schools to build that passion? Maybe this is Space Council business, he said. Toberman has become a brand ambassador of sorts for the UK, to the UK <laughs> for the US Space Force, which has made talent recruiting a priority due to the high technical nature of the work that its members have to do. The problem is that a lot of the messaging about space careers focuses on the science and technology requirements without emphasising the benefits and possibilities that lie ahead as technology advances, he said. The STEM brand isn't resonating with the talented people. To get someone to look at the stars when they're five years old and go, that's what I want to do, he said. That's what we should be doing. A point of comparison is medicine which is a better STEM field, and yet not seen as a STEM field. The brand of medicine is a brand of caring, it's a brand of service, and because of that, talented young people are attracted to a career in medicine, but might not be attracted to a career working for a STEM company. One way to attract young people is to convey the message that they can serve the world by being in space. It's not just about science and technology, it's about the stuff that's enabled by the science and technology. So I think this is an important conversation. And he's not wrong. No, he's not. Kids at a young age, their passion about space and science and the other bits and pieces is amazing. And if you can get them at that age, you've got them for life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not just for the Space Force. I think that's everywhere around the world needs to be embracing these subjects and harnessing it. It's an exciting time in the space industry at the moment. And I think there are a lot of young people that would really love love to be involved but they look at it as something that's really difficult to get involved in especially in this country because they see things like nasa and they think to themselves well i'm never going to be able to work for nasa not here and in the past that was the case you had to become an american citizen to get involved in nasa but it's not like that now right i went to the national space center in in leicester and i asked the question how many countries have a space agency and they said it's easier to ask the question and how many countries don't have a space agency. Even if they haven't been to space, they've got space agencies. They're contributing the science that goes into satellites and projects that end up going into space. When you think about it, it's just NASA and uh, other agencies like that, they get the credit because they're the ones sending the rockets up, but what goes on those rockets comes from all over the place. From elementary schools up to universities to private companies, and then you've got to look at like these DIY projects like I shouldn't really call it a DIY project 
subject, but Copenhagen suborbitals. They wouldn't really qualify as amateur then either. Oh, not really. Yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're professionals, but they're, they're smaller scale. They're part-time as well because they've got other jobs they do as mm-hmm. well as building rockets. They are an amazing company. Well, it's not exactly a company because it's crowdfunded, isn't it? Yeah. I wouldn't mind going over there and visiting them, actually. That would be really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, I still say that you need to be up there for that launch from Scotland. Yeah, it's uh, about a 44-minute flight from Luton to Edinburgh, and then, I don't know, it's probably, I don't even think it's going to be 25 minutes flight from there to Unksk. <laughs> you know it would be worth it. I know somebody who's been there. I will have a word, and I will talk about this on another episode. A lot of people might have forgotten by now that we weren't the only ones with the space shuttle program. Oh, no. Russia kind of suspiciously had shuttles that looked very much like ours. Can't imagine where they might have gotten the, the plans or the designs for it, but there was obviously the Buran, or Buran, I'm not sure how the pronunciation is. The one that actually did take flight was destroyed a couple of years ago because the Cosmodrome that it was stored in collapsed. But what a lot of people don't know is that there's actually another one. This one is called the Burya, and it is currently owned by a Kazakh businessman called Darren Musa, and he, he currently has it. It's still in good shape. Russia wants the shuttle, but he also wants something back from them. So right now, there's a little bit of a tussle going on back and forth as to who's going to own the last Soviet Buran orbiter. Right now, it's in a separate facility over at Baikonur Cosmodrome. Unfortunately, it was vandalized by graffiti artists this past spring, and that's when Russian officials, including the head of Roscosmos, started to become concerned about it. Like, okay, if, if people are going to break in, we need to get it out of there and so forth. However, Musa doesn't simply want to give it back to him. He is asking in exchange for the skull of the last Kazakh Khan, a man named Kenesari Kazimov. Again, my Western tongue, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Apparently, he has emerged recently as a hero in modern-day Kazakhstan for a 10-year struggle that he led against the uh, Russian Empire back in the 1840s. So he was apparently beheaded, and his head was sent back to Russia. So he wants the skull back in exchange for Burya. He said he definitely would not allow the shuttle to be returned to Russia for nothing. Problem is, Russian officials say they don't know where the head is located. There's also a question on whether or not Musa actually owns the Burya vehicle. Okay, here we go. Get ready for this one. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia obviously had to lease Baikonur spaceport from Kazakhstan. Okay, so over time, some Russian space companies operating there sold off assets because, you know, funding became tight. So the prime contractor for the Buran program was a company called RSS Energia, which was the biggest contractor for the Russian space program. Yeah. So, a subsidiary of them was created to manage its properties at Baikonur. In 2004, that company transferred the two Buran vehicles to RSE Infracos, which in turn turned them over to a Russian Kazakh company, JSC Crisp Elita. In 2011, that company's shares were bought by Musa, and he renamed the company to RSC Baikonur. But now the Kazakhstan government is saying that they have asserted ownership over the assets of RSC Baikonur, and the matter is currently being litigated in a court in Kazakhstan. Can this get any messier? <laughs> now, I was under the impression that there was a decommissioned Buran that is in a museum in Germany. Oh, that I'm not sure of. Maybe that was a prototype. This is being called the second Buran-class orbiter. So... Maybe that was a prototype class? Yeah, it could have been. You know, j- just like the uh, Enterprise Space Shuttle? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's that sort of deal. Yeah. I don't know. 
science fact what do we got in other words in science fiction i mean there's always stuff to talk about marvel and dc stuff like that going on but we'll we'll leave that to another show you know how we've talked before about team negative one yes and the the way that they're taking the original star wars trilogy from 35 millimeter film not the special edition crapola (laughs) the last time i checked which was like six months ago they had finished the original Star Wars, they had finished Return of the Jedi, they were still making progress on Empire Strikes Back, but it was like one of the reels they hadn't even started, and they were still working on five or six of them. I just checked a couple of weeks ago, they're down to one reel left. Oh wow. So we might be getting full 4K, completely cleaned up, original, theatrical Empire Strikes Back very soon. Now, I might sound a bit controversial with this. When it came to the special editions, mm-hmm. Empires was the one that I did like with the modifications. I liked the best bin modifications. It made it look... Ah, uh, well, yeah, I mean, those those are relatively harmless. There's not a whole lot that, for Empire Strikes Back. There's a little bit of touching up here and there, but... A little uh, bit here and there. But yeah, I do enjoy watching the special edition of, of Empires. But the other two, <laughs> there are aspects of Star Wars that I, I like with the special editions, but obviously there are bits that they should just have forgotten about um, Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is no way that Han Solo could have trodden on Jabba's tail and got away with that. Nope. No way. <laughs> and, I mean, of course, the whole Han fires first. Of course he did. And he didn't have Greedo say something stupid like McClunky either. I actually uh, spoke to Paul Blake who is the the guy that played Greedo. And I asked him about that scene, and obviously he's biased. (laughs) But he said, no, it's ridiculous what they've done with that. You betcha. I've been watching a few of these reaction videos recently on YouTube, and usually you get these ones of I've never watched Star Wars before type videos. Mm -hmm. They've all been the same kind of thing until I've seen one recently, and she said she hadn't watched Star Wars before. One of her viewers actually sent her a copy of the untouched versions. Nice for her to watch it as it was intended and she said I feel like I was there because I've seen it through the eyes of somebody who watched it in 77 nice it's quite interesting watching some of these people reacting to what we know is happening and the good thing about it is is from what I've seen of it we've now got new members of the family because of this Yep. that always makes me feel good knowing that there's new members of the family there is a lot of toxic uh, fanship that goes along with Star Wars. Oh, yeah. And there is with Star Trek as well, to a degree. Sure there is. Um, not as much as there seems to be in Star Wars. I can do without all of it. I mean, I know what they've done with the new ones. I can see what they've done. They've made massive holes in these things so that they can patch them up with merchandise. That's Disney for you. <laughs> yeah, well... I don't know. I mean, I think it also depends. Now that uh, John Favreau and Dave Filioni pretty much are running the show, they 
those guys are amazing. They're amazing. And they understand Star Wars. They get it. Whereas Kathleen Kennedy is nothing more than a George Lucas sycophant. Mm-hmm. She's, she's a yes man. Whatever George wanted, that's what she wants to keep doing. And Favreau and Filioni are like, mm, no, no. This is really how it should be. And I think George actually appreciates them for that. I, I really be. think that mm. George Lucas appreciates because he has been on set when they've been doing The Mandalorian and such mm. like, and he loves what they've done with it. It is amazing. Mandalorian is really what Star Wars needed, especially after that abomination called Rise of Skywalker. Mandalorian was just, it's fantastic. Not just from a, a story perspective, but for me, I also appreciate the technical perspective behind it. Oh, you know, yes. You know, the, the way that the background images are not blue screened, they're actually LED screens. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing is amazing. That Plus that way they get the, the natural lighting from the way it should be. And to come up with that sort of thing and the various stories, you know, bringing in Ahsoka in. And now that's going to have its own spin-off series. There's good stuff going on now that Filioni and Favreau are more or less the ones who are in charge. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that aspect of the storyline, the canon, because it's going to bring in um, some of the characters from the animated series. Mm-hmm. So you can have characters from Star Wars Rebels in there. You're going to see Thrawn. You're going to see him in the mm-hmm. flesh, and that is going to be so cool. That's going to be a lot of fun. He, he is one of my favorite characters of, of all time in Star Wars. The thinking man's baddie. Yep. I, I still recommend... I have not read the new Thrawn books, but I still recommend the original Thrawn trilogy to people who are like, I want to get something different. You know, I don't want to keep reading this, that, that thing. I'm just like, try the Thrawn trilogy. Even if they're not really big Star Wars fans. Yeah, it's such a good trilogy. And there's some brilliant characters in there. I mean, one mm-hmm. another one of my favorite characters from that series is Talon Card, who's a smuggler he's a a, a gangland boss um, mm-hmm. with his ship called the Wild Card which I think is brilliant like Lando Calrissian he's a smooth character mm-hmm. a very smooth character and yeah it's, they are such, such good books and it's one of the few series of books that I read from start to finish uh, yeah. in less than two weeks finished a lot so it Damn. Was <laughs> there's not many series of books that I will do that but I got so into it I could imagine it as a movie that's the thing and now some of these characters are being are brought to life um, in theory on paper there's so many good Star Wars series that are coming out. I mean, you've got the one based around some of the characters in Rogue One. So it's obviously going to be previous to Rogue One because obviously... I think we're beyond spoiler territory at this point. (laughs) But yeah, none of them make it back. But there's so many throwbacks to other TV series and things in that movie as well. You've also got... There's a hunger for this character to come back. The fans have been waiting long enough, you know? Something that's extremely exciting is the return of, obviously, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
This is quite a dark time that we're coming into with him. Just being a Jedi, it's not safe. There's Jedi hunters out there. At least he has this one task left, which is to keep Luke safe. That's definitely a starting place for our story. The interesting thing is going to be where it goes from there. The most beautiful thing of all is that it's brought me back together with Hayden. We are bringing back Hayden Christensen to reprise the role of Darth Vader. We couldn't tell the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi without addressing Anakin or Vader. Have another swing at each other. It might be quite uh, satisfying for everybody. We hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoy making it. which is looking pretty good. There's a lot of good Star Wars stuff out there, but like you said, you need to keep away from some of the... I, I know Boba Fett is his original character, but to have the, his own series is going to be quite spectacular. Um, and what they did to bring him back in The Mandalorian. I mm -hmm. mean, you, you've seen in the books or you've read in the books about the knee firing rockets and all this kind of stuff. You've never seen it before. And it's just those little things that only a true Star Wars fan would think of putting into a TV show. And that's Filion and Favreau. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you hear Babylon 5 is getting rebooted? So I heard, yeah. I also follow J. Michael Straczynski on Twitter, and he is awesome at responding to fans, which, which is really great. And he is a part of it. He, he's calling it like a ground-up reboot. So, I mean, who knows what that means. But I know that he said that he does want people from the original to be involved in one way or another. But yeah, so, so B5 is getting rebooted. It looks like it's going to be, I don't know, is the CW available over there? Probably not. We don't have the channel, but we do have CW programs. Um, yeah. And they get licensed out to other channels here. Yeah, yeah. I'd imagine with a franchise as big as that, we will get it. Oh, I'm sure. Especially with, with J. Michael Straczynski as part of it. That's going to be cool. And they're still working on a Star Trek movie. They're being really, really, really tight-lipped over what it's going to be. But right now, it's being pushed to December 22nd. 2023. All we've got is it's a Star Trek movie. Mm -hmm. Matt Shackman is attached to direct. We got nothing else on it. So I don't know. My guess would be that they are just completely going to ignore the alternate timeline because as much as it worked, let's face it, everybody who's involved with that project, they're pretty big now, so they're stuck getting involved with other projects, plus they want more money, and Paramount's just like, mm, nope, we're going to ignore that. So I don't see them dealing with that anymore. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. But definitely looking forward to seeing Star Trek on the big screen again. Mm-hmm. You've obviously seen Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know there was a director's cut to that? Basically, Robert Wise was allowed to do a special edition on it. Paramount said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll give you the funding. And they it's only on DVD right now. But he went back and scenes that couldn't be made in time because of time constraints. A lot of people don't realize... As much as Star Trek The Motion Picture gets a little bit looked down on because it was boring in spots, the special effects that they did on that were revolutionary. Even beyond Star Wars and, and stuff that they did for Star Wars and Superman, they came up with a lot of new technology to film Star Trek The Motion Picture. But as a result, he couldn't get all the effects that he wanted because of time constraints and so forth. So Robert Wise was allowed to go back, and he didn't change anything fundamental in the movie. 
you can't say that about Star Wars. No. But he went in and scenes that were visually not fulfilling, shall we say, he was allowed to give them a CGI makeover. So it's still the same movie. But if you're used to seeing models in certain scenes, like, well, for example, you never see, in the original version, you never see the actual V'ger ship. No, you don't. No. So, so, you, so you don't get the scale. In the director's edition, you can. Like, when it's approaching Earth, you actually see the massive V'ger ship approaching Earth. So any, anybody who's saying that I'm a hypocrite for beating on George Lucas while not beating on Robert Wise, uh, Robert Wise didn't try to change the movie. He didn't try to change the narrative of the movie. But they've redone it in HD. Actually, they've done it in, they've redone it in 4K. Now, for now, it's only going to be available on Paramount+. Plus. You know damn well they're going to put Blu-rays out on that. Yeah. So definitely looking forward to that one. I would love to see that. I mean, the DVD's fine. You get the idea. I'd love to see that in Blu-ray. I don't have a 4K TV yet. I'm holding on to my 3D TV, you know, until it dies. Then I'll go for 4K. But I'd still love to see that just in Blu-ray. That would be nice enough. We're just waiting for the new series of Picard, and we've got... Discovery. Yeah. The first two seasons of Discovery were okay, but now that they've gone into the future, and it's basically now their own series, they don't have to worry about linking up with, with other factors. 24th century kind of things. Because you know, when you've got shows like that, people are looking for cameos and other links and things like that. Now they don't have to. And this last season of Discovery, I thought it was really good. And they changed it around. They've been given a clean slate, really. Yeah. I guess it follows the course of, for most Star Trek series, the first season or two are not good, then it gets better. But even at that, those were still in the same environment and in the same situation. Whereas with this one, it's like, hey, you know what? We're just going to send them into the future. But then you've got that other spin-off from Discovery, haven't you? The one that's on the Enterprise. Uh... Uh, yeah, there's the one with Christopher Pike coming up. Yeah, that hasn't been released yet, I don't think. No, it hasn't. But that would be pretty good because the way they crossed that over in Discovery was really good. And they kind of had a little throwback to the original series on there as well, which was... Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you have to if it's Christopher Pike. But there was a lot of bits from, you know, classic episodes that were mm -hmm. a bit of a homage to it in there, which was, which was really cool. And, of course, there's a second series of Lower Decks out there now, which Lower I need De to watch. Lower Decks doesn't do much for me. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it it's cute, it's funny, but it's... I don't know, it just doesn't... I don't know. There's actually another series out called Prodigy. That's the Nickelodeon series, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but except this is a Star Trek that is made specifically toward kids, mm -hmm. which obviously Lower Decks is not. No, for sure. No. No, it's <laughs> the, not. The humor in that is definitely <laughs> not for kids. That's not for kids. But Prodigy is meant for kids, so who knows? Maybe maybe we'll, we'll see a bit of a resurgence from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. We are not going to get HD versions of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, folks. Give it up. Give it up. I see people still complaining about that on Twitter. It's like, you people just don't know the history on this, do you? We're not going to get HD versions of Voyager and DS9. It ain't going to happen. I'll be glad to be wrong, but I don't know that Paramount's recovered their money from the HD restorations of Next Generation. I was going to say, it's going to cost so much money to produce. Oh, it's going to be ridiculous. They have to do every bit of CGI from scratch. Everything. At least with Next Generation, they didn't have to deal with that. 
you know, they had the elements, but not DS9 or Voyager, so it, guys, it's not gonna happen. I'm telling you. Oh, oh, one last thing, one last thing. Regrettably, then this isn't so much TGP nominal as much as it is garbage pod. <sighs> the American Song Contest is on for February. <laughs> Kill me. Just stop this. That article just came out yesterday. I was like, oh, you're kidding. It's going to be on February 21st. And it's going to follow the same thing. Three qualifying rounds, the semifinals, then the ultimate grand final where one state or territory will emerge victorious. Oh, God. I honestly don't think Eurovision has any clue what they're getting into. Because they, they're even trying to tout the various differences we have in this. We do, but not like Europe. It's not like the music that you listen to in California is any different than the music you listen to in New York. Okay, sure, down south you're going to have a heavier country presence. But otherwise, the music that we've got in one state is the music that we've got in another state. We don't have those cultural differences like you have in Europe, which is what makes Eurovision fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing the same kind of songs that we hear over here, and people are going to vote for which state they like the most. I, I still can't believe they're going through with this. It'll happen once, I think it'll fade away. I hope so. You know, I take that back. I don't want to say I hope so. I simply won't participate in it. If it takes off, fine. You know, it's not going to hurt me to have it become popular. We've got the X Factor. We've got all those other ones. I just don't watch them. So, and I'm not asking for them to go away. I just, I don't see this being the success that they think it is. And, and, you know that eventually what's going to happen... If it does take off, the winner of the American Song Contest is going to be asked to participate in Eurovision in one way or another. Oh, yeah, even if it's uh, an interval act or something yep. like that, yeah. You you know it's going to happen, and it... No. <laughs> no. I want to be able to see Eurovision over here without geo-blocking, without having to be restricted to go to a certain channel to watch it. Unblock it on YouTube for me, please. I'll be happy with that. Maybe that's a way of getting it to happen, because that means America will become part of the EBU. Oh, God. That's a hell of a price to pay. <laughs> oh, and it's going to be on NBC, so it's going to be loaded with commercials. Well, all of the European broadcasting is uh, littered with commercials as well, which is unfortunate for the BBC because, obviously, they don't have advertising on the BBC, so when they have the commercials all throughout Europe, the BBC are filling time. That explains that one. I, okay, Finnish TV doesn't geoblock, so I just dial in the, the Finnish TV, and that explains why they end up talking a lot over nothing. Because there's commercial breaks. Because we'll be listening to it, and it's like, okay, go on to the next act. What, what's taking so long? What are they talking about? Why are they rehashing? That explains it. <laughs> there's a lot of filling done on the BBC. Luckily, we've got the likes of your Graham Nortons and your such like great at filling in stuff. I love Graham Norton. Yeah, he is so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the American Song Contest is a thing. Oh, well. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. 
spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. Yes. So, what's it like being back on the show? Oh, it's about freaking time. <laughs> Schedules just didn't allow it. Yeah, so I'm going to start making plans for our Christmas crossover. I'm not 100% sure what I'm doing with it yet, but I've got some ideas. I'm trying to get in touch with a couple of people, which I know you'll be excited to be talking with them again. And uh, yeah, we're just going to see how it goes. It's a complete melting pot of fusion of all kinds of good stuff. As it is a crossover with the Garbage Pod, anything can happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not necessarily worthy of mention on this one yeah (laughs) so that just leaves me to say the usual stuff and that is thanks for listening everyone out there stay safe and we'll speak to you again real soon toodles doc (laughs) you know you stinker well that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal if you want to get in touch with us then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com where your input is our output or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com if you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts you can do so via iTunes the RSS feed and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.